like so many people these days, we live in the suburbs, and Dave needs the car every day for business. When he was gone, I was practically a prisoner in my own home. I couldn't get out to see my friends, couldn't take part in PTA activities, but I couldn't even shop when I wanted to. I had to wait till Thursday night after Dave brought the car home. But that's all changed now. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I'm very honored to have a special guest, Lee Gallagher, author of a new book, The End of the Suburbs, Where the American Dream is Moving. Lee is the assistant managing editor at Fortune Magazine. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Chuck, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. You have been making quite the rounds, and it's exciting to see you and this book gaining so much traction. It's really a pleasure to have you. Let me start out with, I think, the question that everybody's asking, which is, why do you hate America so much? Oh, I don't hate America. I love America. <laughs> you have a line in the opening chapter of the book where you say, this is not a book about whether the suburbs ought to end or not, but how they are ending. I think that's probably the most provocative thing. What made you interested in this topic? Well, you know, it's funny. I was really just struck by the data I started to see. I kind of stumbled upon the data in 2011 that had started to show and then was bolstered in 2012. Census data that really was showing that for the first time in more than 90 years, our migration pattern or growth pattern had started to change a little bit. It was starting to slow in the suburbs, especially in the exurbs, and it was starting to pick up in the city. And that had been happening a little bit, but this was the first time that it was really in black and white numbers so strongly. I wasn't 100% sure that there was a big, big story there at that point. I just thought, wow, this is kind of interesting. And if this is true of something bigger, then that would be a really big idea. This notion that the suburbs, which are so rich with such cultural implication and cultural resonance in our country, they're such a part of the fabric of our country's history and our society. If there was something to this argument that we had kind of had enough of them and that we wanted something different or that we're moving in a different direction, that would be a very big idea with a capital B and a capital I. And I really like big ideas, yeah. especially ones that pertain to how and where we live and how and where we behave as a society. Now, you went to Cornell. Did you get a journalism or mass communication degree? or what? I was an English major. I went to Cornell. I didn't go to graduate school for journalism, but I've known I wanted to be a journalist since I was in ninth grade and took a journalism class. I wrote for the paper up there, and I then had a series of internships after college and kind of went the old-fashioned route. So yeah, I just come at this from a journalist. I don't have an urbanism degree or an urban planning degree. I come at it just solely from an observer of interesting things. To me, you know, the very first time we talked, that was the thing that struck me was that, you know, I, I'm married to a journalist. And so I have a respect for what you do as a journalist. And you were asking different questions than anybody had asked before regarding this. Beyond just the numbers, what was it that made this topic really grab you and be compelling? Something that you would want to vest like this much time in? What makes this a good story from a journalist standpoint? Oh, gosh, a couple things. And first of all, I remember that first phone call with you. And yeah. the questions I was asking 
I was probably clueless at that point. I mean, I started out, I think you were one of my first phone calls. Sure. And I just started out just exploring around, like kind of blind and just sort of feeling around for what's there. I didn't even know the right questions to ask, but yet I knew that something was happening. And of course, you know, the role of a journalist, as you know, you, you educate yourself over the process. So I hope by the last time we met, my <laughs> questions were different. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they should be. You know, it's provocative. What drew me to it was that it's a huge idea and it affects everybody. It's funny. I, I had a, a meeting with Andreas Duani at one point and he looked at me and he said, you know the problem with this topic, don't you? And I said, what? Huh. And I didn't know what he was going to say. There's no one it doesn't affect and no topic it doesn't touch. It affects and addresses everything. <laughs> so yeah. that, he was saying that this is going to be your challenge. There's so much to talk about. And that's true. So that's really what drew me to it. It really impacts everyone. And it was such a big change. And once you learn about, you know, this is why I think this topic has such mainstream appeal. Once you learn a, a little bit about the design of a road or a street, it's like an aha moment for anyone who lives anywhere. It's like, oh, Oh, that's why I feel the way I do when I walk down that street. All of these things that were sort of revealed to me throughout the course of the process, I was in many ways experiencing it like a reader. And I was having these aha moments along the way, and they were just so fun and exhilarating. And I just thought, wow, this is going to be a book that I think anyone can identify with and a topic that anyone is going to be really elucidated by reading. To me, that was the beauty about our first conversation was that it was – not that you were working on necessarily a deadline or something where you had a specific project or an angle, but you were just trying to learn. What is that education process? And I think it would help our listeners to understand how you as a journalist approached this book. You started making calls. You started talking to people. What were some of those steps that you took to illuminate this for yourself? Well, not knowing anything. I mean, I started out just by doing a bunch of background reading and there's a ton of material, whether it's press clips or documents or books. And I sort of became to familiarize myself with the names and I made a list of the people I would probably want to talk to. It's like a trail. One call leads to another. One person suggests another, suggests another. So the way I got to you is a great example of this. I came across Ellen Dunham Jones' TED Talk about retrofitting suburbia. I forget how I came across that, but you know, a TED Talk is going to sure. come up in any cursory research. And I interviewed her and we had a great talk. She was one of my first phone calls. And she said, oh, you got to talk to Chuck Maroach. You know, she told me about your theory that the suburbs are a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, I'm a journalist. I like headlines. As soon right. as I heard suburbs, Ponzi scheme, that sounded like a great thing. Let's go. <laughs> like, yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> Not that I want that to be true. I mean, I just thought that was really interesting. And it's I thought, an angle. Yeah. This is someone I need to talk to. And then we had our conversation, which began a whole other set of conversations. One thing leads to another. And there are certain people I knew I had to talk to and certain facts and figures I knew I needed to get. As engineers and as planners and as economists and as this whole group of professionals that work in this realm, we sometimes think that we're the holders of like secret knowledge. At any point in here, did you feel like this was beyond, I mean, you're a smart person. Was this beyond your capacity to grasp or understand? Was this something that kind of was illuminating because it was in plain sight or what was that discernment process for you? You know, as a journalist, you're always afraid of what you're missing. This is such a big topic that it's impossible to know every little last thing. And I tend to be a control freak. I like to over-report <laughs> and then write about something and leave most of it on the cutting room floor. But all that intel went into yeah. what you decided to write about to begin with. You know, this is such a sprawling, so to speak, topic that I felt like there were probably avenues I hadn't explored. And I would have loved to have gotten inside Walmart or Target or Pulte Homes yeah. Whatever data is publicly available, 
you know that the big giant companies that make their living on finding out where people are going, you know they have teams and teams and teams of demographers and statisticians and probably data that just would blow you away if you saw it. And I just felt like that would really be getting the keys to the kingdom. I think if I had another year to work on the book, I could have gotten in there and I could have done that. <laughs> what were some of those conversations like? I mean, you met Duani, who's one of my heroes, and I had a chance to talk to him. But you also met some of the home builders and some of the people working on building this stuff, approaching it as a reporter, as kind of a non-technical person. How were you accepted by them? And what were some of the stories they were interested in conveying to you? Well, it really depends. Andres Duani was amazing. He was open to talking with me from the start. And the first phone call, you know, people had told me, oh, you're going to really get a lot, you know, you're prepared to have your mind blown kind of thing. And sure enough, we really, really did have my mind blown. He just went all over the place, was talking about everything from why the young generation likes fixed gear bikes, and that's cool. <laughs> and we talked a lot about this and how there's a pall on anything that's seen as wasteful. And, you know, if you have a 20-year-old girl or something, she'd rather go with the guy that, he used the word I won't repeat, but tracks wolf refuse in the forest than like the one uh-huh. that has a stable job or something. And, you know, he goes off on these tangents. So it was just really fascinating. So he was just entertaining and joyful and a journalist dream to talk to. Then you take the home builders and they were a little bit tricky. You know, some of them would talk to me, some of them didn't. I did talk to Toll Brothers a lot throughout the book, and they initially were reluctant to talk to me. They said, you know, we don't really know if we want to be talking to you for a book that's called The End of the Suburbs, because I think at that point, my book cover was already visible on Amazon. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so it seemed like I had formulated this argument before talking to anybody, which really wasn't true. But I just really pressed them, and I said, you know, Toll Brothers City Living, which is their city division, is exploding. They're doing such interesting things. This is a huge story. and That was a story that I ended up telling for Fortune magazine, and that made them feel, I think, a little more comfortable. They opened up to me for that. That was a perfect story for us to run in Fortune because it was really, you know, an example of what a big business is doing to adapt to these trends. Then they were more open to talking to me, but, you know, I don't know if they love the book. They still build suburban houses, but the home building industry was a little bit hard to crack, I will say. I want to get to the home building industry in a second because you have a some hilarious stories. (laughs) One time when we spoke before the book came out and then when I read it, it was even funnier, but I want to help people understand you a little bit. And I'm going to say this, not trying to be flattering or anything, but really the lack of an agenda that you approach this with as a journalist, I think the mark of a good journalist, which I think you are one is that you're open to the facts and, and follow them. You grew up in a little suburb of Philadelphia called media. Can you just talk about how that experience of growing up there kind of shaped the way you approached this initially? It informed a lot of my approach, I'll say, because, you know, I had this wonderful kind of a very idyllic childhood growing up in media, which is a really unique little place. And over the course of my research, I came to have this newfound appreciation for how I grew up because I realized how unique it is. It's a little town 12 miles southwest of Philadelphia, the borough of media has a thriving main street. It has a trolley, which you hardly ever see anymore. And it's not for tourists. People actually use it to get to work every day. It has a big courthouse that brings a population of 30,000 people to the town each day. It's got tons of restaurants and bars that stay open until one in the morning or two in the morning. It's lively. 
I could walk there from my suburban house, which was in a little neighborhood. And we had wonderful things. We had a 4th of July party in my neighborhood. And I came to realize through my research how perfect it was, a perfect little suburb. And I really did have this wonderful experience. And I was very clear in the book to make it clear that I don't have a bias against the suburbs. In fact, I had this wonderful experience. And yet I couldn't help noticing all these changes as a journalist. I really wanted to just observe the facts that were happening and lay out the facts without a bias, without an agenda, which I did not have. I am an urban dweller right now, but I don't know if I'm going to be here forever. And there are things that are kind of a pain about living in New York City. So I really don't have a bias. I would not want to live in a cul-de-sac in conventional drivable suburbia. I don't think I would want that. But on the other hand, I see the benefits of having a house in a really great, well-designed, I would pick probably pre-war suburb. In media, it was one of those pre-World War II streetcar suburb type places that, that still were designed around the traditional development pattern type principles. I'm assuming you've talked to your parents about this whole thing. Is it interesting now to have a conversation about the place you grew up with and maybe be able to explain it a little bit differently? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, every time I go home to media, I did a book signing there and I was explaining to everyone, you live in a really special place (laughs) and it's special for these reasons. And look at the width of the sidewalks and look at the street and look at the cobblestones and look at how close you are to this little town and you can actually walk here. And so you have the, think you, I'm crazy, but you have the disease now. See, this is the affliction that so many of us <laughs> suffer from. It is so much easier to be ignorant of all those things because when you travel around now, you're starting to notice, aren't you? The spacing of the sidewalks, the height of the street lights, the trees, and the way the buildings frame. Are you losing sleep now because of this, or basically? I, yeah, I cannot help. I notice it everywhere. Once it's in your head, you cannot not notice it. And if you're just kind of inherently curious person, it's just like, wow, this is why that's here. Or wow, this building is shaped this way and it's positioned in this place. And that's why this whole block has this feeling instead of that feeling. It's like drinking. You know, I don't want to say drinking Kool-Aid. It's not. But yeah. it is like being enlightened and it's then the, you look at things differently. It's the red pill, blue pill from the Matrix. It, it really is. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, It's like now your eyes are open. Talk to me a little bit about living in New York City, because that to me, I mean, I I grew up in a very small town. I still live in a small town. I gave a curbside chat in media earlier this year. And just like you said, I just love the place. It is a fantastic, the people there were great. We had a great time. I go to New York City and it's a completely different world. One that I find exciting, but a little scary and intimidating too. What's it like writing a book about the suburbs from New York City? And, And how did that kind of maybe inform some of the questions you were asking. Well, you know, I really tried to bend over backwards and sort of disprove the fact that I was some condo-dwelling urbanite who hates the suburbs. That's not who I am. But it's sort of like the opposite lifestyle and the opposite in every way. I mean, we live in these teeny tiny spaces in New York City. We pay so much for them. It's sensory overload here. Just this morning, I walked out of my apartment and there's construction on the street. There's a horn blaring. I just was like, wow. I mean, (laughs) I hear you. It's a lot. It hits you. But I did so much research on Jane Jacobs and her theories. And she lived two blocks from where I live. I went by her house and took a picture. And, you know, everything she writes about, I see every day as soon as I step out of my door the 24 7 ballet of the city street the mixture of uses and people and eyes on the street and the the community. I'm smacking the heart of all that in the West Village. And so that was really interesting. And 
the West Village is a little bit of a an oasis in the city of a little bit calmer, quieter neighborhood, at least in Manhattan. But I did, you know, I'll tell you, I did get to kind of crave some quiet. And when you're writing a book, you really need, every writer's different, but I really need drop dead silence. And yeah. that's hard to find. In the city, I would have my, I would put earplugs in and my Bose headphones on top of them because I have a neighbor upstairs who can be loud sometimes or that's the joys of city living. <laughs> uh, you sound like my, very much like my wife now. <laughs> One of the techniques that you use, again, I think this is why this book is so powerful as something written by a journalist, not by a tech geek writing about, you know, the thing they're immersed in. You use a lot of stories and you use a lot of people to describe things in a way that I think is very compelling. I was going to ask you about Duani and your impressions, and you already talked about that. So let's talk about Diane Roseman, who I think was another compelling character, someone who wanted the minivan and the American dream and had lived around the world, but really was trying to get back to what she saw as the American ideal. Would you mind just telling her story a little bit? Because I think it's sure. really compelling. Diane Roseman, I came across Diane and I just found her story so compelling. She and her husband moved to Westboro, Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston, at about 2003, I think. And they had lived all over the world. They had lived in Southern California. They had lived in Jerusalem. They had really been in a lot of different places. And they had three children by the time they moved in. And a couple weeks after they moved in, they had a fourth. And so there they were, you know, four kids in the middle of conventional suburbia. She really thought, if I'm going to do this, I want the whole American dream. I want the house. I want the minivan. I want the whole deal. It was during this phase where prices were really high. And they looked at first in some older suburbs right around Boston, like Newton, some places like that. And it was expensive. And she said, look, if I'm going to spend $400,000 on a house, I want it to be the best house I can get for that money. So they went a little further and then a little further. <laughs> and they moved in. They found a colonial on a pleasant street, lots of other families and everything. In a very short period of time, she came to realize that this was not, the lifestyle was not at all what she thought it would be. And there are a number of reasons for that. For one, she was not expecting that everyone in her neighborhood would be so homogenous in terms of life stage. You know, everyone was in the same age range doing the same thing, raising children. She thought there would be more diversity, older people, younger people. There wasn't any of that. She didn't like the design of the neighborhood because it was unsafe for her kids to leave the sort of loop that they lived on because the collector road that it flowed into, just the cars moved too fast. And then she also learned that everybody played by play date anyway. So it wasn't like everybody would, all the kids would just serendipitously play in the street. Everybody had a playset in their backyard, but you couldn't access that playset unless there was a scheduled play date. She, <laughs> she, she was surprised at that. And then yeah. she also, she's the focus of a chapter about the car. She was stunned at how much time she ended up spending in her car. Part of that's because she had four children. She didn't just have two children, but she was shuttling everyone around for activities from the hours of three to six every day. And she told me she put 40 to 50 miles on her car each day, just taking everyone around to all the places they need to be. She was not happy there. And then all the care and maintenance, she said every weekend her husband would either spend a full day taking care of the lawn or shoveling snow or something. And in the end, they sold their house at a cost. It was not easy for them to do. And they bought a row house in Cambridge and moved everyone into the city. And they're so happy. And not, not everybody would make that move and not everybody can do that. But they are, in this particular case, this family is very happy right now. <laughs> it's the exchange that to me was so interesting because I find myself, we have two daughters, my wife and I do, one that is in first grade and one in third. Monday nights, 
One has dance that starts at 5.30. The other one has gymnastics that starts at 6 on the other side of town. Then the one gets done and then the other one gets done. And literally I spend 45 minutes in a car driving back and forth across town to get these kids to their destinations and then drive home, which is way on the other side of town. I think that we often, and this comes through really, really well, we often like devalue our own time and our own lives in pursuit of what we envision to be the, whether it's prosperity or the American dream thing to do. And those characters just seem to me, you know, the people in that chapter seem to me to capture that so vividly. I think that the best way to understand something is to read a story. And so I really tried to put as many real people's stories in there as possible in the book. But you're, you make a great point about devaluing time. And, you know, again and again and again, I would talk to people who really just had these terrible commutes, were in their cars all the time. And yet, you know, we still make this, psychologists call it a focusing illusion. It's like you want the big house so badly that you don't think about the practicalities of all that time in your car and what it means. And sometimes it means that a lot of parents don't see their children as much. And so a big reason why people move to the suburbs, you know, in in the nicest house they can find is because they're prioritizing their children and the family life. But if mom and dad especially with two-parent working households, are in the car so long for such great amounts of time, they're not really spending as much of that time with their children. It's kind of deprioritizing the family. And I came up with a theory for this. I think that the lost time is not something you can see and put your hands on. You can't touch it. It's just sort of an idea. But the house is very physical. And so the things you give up, the negatives of that making that choice are kind of invisible. They're not something you can touch, but they're really important. Wow. Talk to me about the Home Builders Association. And specifically, I think you have to tell the story of how you went to their conference at kind of the depths of the housing crisis and what that experience was like for them there. This is how I opened the book. We decided about whether or not to open the book with this. It's classic. (laughs) But it was so surprising and it's a great anecdote that my editor really pushed me to do this. So I was at the National Association of Home Builders International Builder Show, IBS in January 2012, and it was held in Orlando, and this is the annual gathering of the home building industry. I went to the opening keynote, which was they had hired Aaron Ralston, who is the guy from the movie 127 Hours, who cut his arm off. He got trapped in a boulder and cut his arm off, and now he's a paid speaker and writes books, and he's a celebrity, as we all know. Sure. So he was the speaker, and he was talking about his whole message, and this was the depths of the housing crisis. I mean, these things were not looking good. A housing starts, everything had just hit record lows. And his theme, the reason he was there was to talk about make your boulders your blessings. His whole message was like, see the positive in the hard times, which is what he did. You know, I mean, he cut his arm <laughs> off and then right. he, he was thrilled when he did that because it meant he had life and he was going to be saved and all this stuff. And it was a really moving speech, but it was also pretty graphic. He really talks in really vivid terms about what it was like to do what he did. And he talks about hitting the nerve and it was like metal and just, it was hard to listen to, but it was also kind of a fraught time. And this weird thing happened where first there was someone in my row who kind of fell ill and somebody rushed in and was giving him water and Ralston didn't stop. He couldn't really see it. But then elsewhere in the crowd, another person fell faint and then another person fell faint and they ended up wheeling in like three different stretchers it was so bizarre. Wow. It was so weird. Somebody next to me said, is there, is this food poisoning? Do you think like we couldn't figure it out? 
it was a fraught time. People were already on edge and they were listening to this harrowing story and it was just too much for some people. Yeah. And later, one of the people from the NAHB said to me, we were talking about the story like a year later. And he said, you know, we couldn't get over that. He said, these are like NFL linebackers. These are not weak people that are faint. I mean, right. the home building industry, that's sort of a stereotype, but it's a lot of, you know what uh, I mean? Yeah, totally. No, these are rugged, not squeamish people. You exactly. know, a, a lot of them are out pounding nails and, and hauling shingles and they've seen fingers get smashed and, you know, arms get uh, cut. So yeah, these are not, yeah. these are not little sissies by any means. You know, the notion that we would essentially be amputating limbs in order to survive. The one thing I think the salvation that you talk about pretty vividly in your book is that, you know, we're not, going to get rid of home builders. I mean, we're going to have home builders and they've got valuable things to do in this new economy. How would you describe the transition that they are making or that you're witnessing them make and respond to the market things you're seeing going on? I think the home builders are to be lauded. You know, it's funny, my agent, my book agent read the first draft of the manuscript when I was done. And the first thing she did was she went out and bought Toll Brothers and Pulte stock. Sure. <laughs> I mean, the home builders are adjusting to these trends they are what Duani calls touchingly responsive. They react on a dime when they see that there's a business opportunity or a need to react. And so they're doing a lot of soul searching and experimenting and trying new things. And those trends were all over the Home Builders show. You could see them and they still are. You look at what's being built now and a lot of these Home Builders are trying to create new solutions for some of the problems that they're seeing people have. And so I applaud the home builders. I think they're doing a great job. I mean, many of them are still building the same old, same old, but just the fact that so many of them are starting to change is really commendable. Do you see the same thing? I mean, I see Minnesota here is the corporate headquarters of Best Buy and I see Best Buy like struggling to make this change. But with like the boutique Walmarts and the, you know, Mick cafes that McDonald's is trying to do, is this something that you think is going to spread and more and more companies are going to adopt this? I think what the companies are doing is so interesting because they follow the wealth. I mean, they follow where people are moving, especially the retailers. So I think we're going to continue to see more smaller format stores open in more surprising locations. And another thing I think we're going to see more of is corporate headquarters moving back into cities. I mean, you're already seeing a lot of that in places like Chicago. You have United Airlines or Sarah Lee, which is now called Hillshire Brands, moving headquarters back into downtown Chicago and leaving the big suburban office park, which is such a fixture and an icon of suburbia. And actually, just last week, I was in Newark, New Jersey to attend an opening for Panasonic's new U.S. headquarters, which had relocated from Secaucus, New Jersey, which is very much in the kind of strip mall sprawl pattern. Uh, they had a big office park there, and they moved to a building, a tower in downtown Newark. I said to the CEO, Joe Taylor, I said, you know, you're really at the forefront of a trend here. Do you know that? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but, you know, is anybody else coming to Newark? It's easy to move your headquarters to Chicago or Manhattan who else is doing Newark? He really kind of threw it back as a yeah. challenge. Yeah. He's really proud of how gritty, you know, and they really want to invest in Newark and they want other companies too. And they're really excited about it. There's a whole group of people that are fanatic about the business opportunities right now in Detroit. Uh, yeah, and, exactly. And in downtown Detroit. Yeah. I do see large corporations in a sense responding to this. I wonder if there's a dissonance there in the sense that, and a lot of what we do at Strong Towns is point out how, federal policy, state policy, and how it's influenced local policy to essentially construct this post-World War II framework that really benefits the company that wanted to locate their campus out on the edge and the Walmarts 
and the drive-through restaurant franchises of the world. Is there a dichotomy or an irony here in essentially those same companies now turning around and suggesting that maybe we should be switching, you know, abandoning that and going in a different direction? There is an irony there. Absolutely. I mean, they were, you know, the building blocks of suburbia are what encourages companies to make those moves. And I think now what you're seeing is I'm sure Panasonic got a lot of economic incentive to when a company comes to a place like Newark, it has a transformative effect. And I'm sure they were properly incentivized to do that. But there definitely is an irony here. There's an irony to the whole entire argument. But absolutely, if you look at the federal policies and the government policies that put in place the ability to build sprawl. If you look at what we did, though, to large urban centers, which in the 1950s and 60s were just completely gutted, is this the future? I'm not asking you to predict the future. And I, I know you've gone out of your way here to say, these are the trends that I see happening, but I'm, you know, I'm not predicting the suburbs will implode or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But are we looking at essentially at least the start of a trend of essentially reversing what was done to cities in the 50s and 60s? And and what are the implications of that to the exurbs and some of these second ring suburbs that maybe are a little more financially fragile? Well, I think that's absolutely what we're seeing. I think if you think of what cities were like in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and even the early 90s here in New York, the crack epidemic was raging and cities are now, I mean, it's polar opposite. You know, here in New York City, the Meatpacking district is a place no one would have ever gone 15 years ago. And now it's like a casting call for the bachelorette. It's like everyone is dolled yeah. up going out. Yeah. It's just the epicenter of the social scene. And there's so many families living here. And this is happening in every city. So I do think that we're seeing a pull back towards the core. And it is a 180 degree reversal. And what that means, yes, I mean, Chris Leinberger has done phenomenal work on this, suggesting that the exurbs are going to be the next slums. And Jim Kunstler thinks that they're going to be either refuge yards or slums or all of the above. And there's a real case to be made for that. And it's already happening. So that's definitely going to happen and already is happening. Just logic just tells you that. The places that are farthest away is where the people who could least afford it ended up trapped. They're losing their homes. Those homes are a lot less desirable on the open market right now, and that is going to continue to play out. You know, and I say this in the book, I do think that suburbs that are able to urbanize, the first ring, the inner ring, the suburbs that are built on a more urban bones and that can provide the kind of experience that people want, I think those will do well. So I think we'll really see a kind of survival of the fittest. I'm interested in crossing over a little bit into the financial realm. How has your book been received by people, not necessarily on Wall Street, but I mean, you you work with financial companies, you write for a financial magazine. How has this been received amongst that crowd? Very well. I mean, it's funny. Everybody with this topic, they relate it to their own childhood. I mean, it's like yeah. you, you start talking about any aspect of this topic, whether it's the financial implications or anything, and people will just instantly, their expression will turn and their look in their eyes will change and they'll start thinking about their own childhood. And they know just how different life is now than it was when they grew up. And people get really nostalgic. So everybody wants to bring it to themselves. Right. But, and the people in the financial community really have grabbed onto that really a lot. Every time in any kind of fortune magazine context where this comes up, Uh, the conversation always goes to everybody's experience. It's interesting though, because I realized years ago that I should never invest in the Walt Disney company because I grew up a huge Disney kid and love the theme parks and I'm just a Disney addict. And I really can't 
in any good conscience, judge the company on its financial merits. You know, when I see their quarterly report and I listen in, I'm actually listening in to find out what the next movies are going to be, <laughs> you know, great. or what the next attraction at Disney World is going to be, not how the company is actually doing financially. It seemed to me for a long time that there's a problem in whether it's in the way we price muni bonds or, uh, you know, the way we invest in infrastructure projects, the way things flow through Wall Street that collateralized the, the CDOs on mortgages. It seems like there is a dissonance, a not connecting between what is actually going on on the ground and where the money is that's funding some of that stuff. I'm just wondering if you're seeing people starting to say, look, maybe that muni bond for that exurb is not a great investment and maybe it shouldn't be rated as high as it does just because we're starting to know more about the trajectory of the exurbs. I think that that's starting to play a role. I mean, credit has really tightened up through all aspects of the home buying process. And at the same time, a lot of municipalities are really struggling, as you and I have talked about and as Meredith Whitney has written about. I mean, Meredith Whitney has a book that recently came out, and our books are kind of companion books in many ways because she's writing about how the municipalities overspent and the states have overspent, and they're really facing some tough times. And it's all related. And I write about, as you know, the, how the suburban infrastructure is so costly and so inefficient and unsustainable from a financial perspective. But, uh, you know, it's funny. There is a, a bit of a disconnect. I don't think Wall Street is talking to the urban planning community. And I don't think Wall Street is even talking to the home building community. So I think that, you know, Wall Street, especially with the mortgage process, they're looking more at maybe demographics than what's actually happening on the ground. And I think that there's a disconnect there. And I hope that maybe my book will bring it together for them a little bit because it's all of a piece. And there's a lot of data and a lot of movement to be had that might help them think about the financing of homes a bit differently. We see right now the Federal Reserve essentially buying every mortgage that has originated today. And you know, I see in a parallel sense in the media all these reports about how housing is back and, you know, we're starting to build homes again. And a lot of the homes that are being built, and, and some of this is, you know, questioning some of the conclusions of your book directly. You know, hey, Lee, uh, you know, the end of the suburbs, we're seeing all this booming going on in the suburbs. Are we in a weird time in terms of seeing some of this stuff work out? Is this just the transition we're watching? Or is there a bigger question here that's not being asked? I think that it's a transition. I mean, when you look at the numbers and the demographics, there's no way you can come to the conclusion that the demand for some big suburban homes is going to stay the same. There's just no way anyone who can read <laughs> yeah, yeah. would see that. Yes, there are still cul-de-sacs being developed and single-family homes going up, and it's not like everything's going to halt immediately. or not, It's not even like everything's going to halt altogether. We're going to see a changing mixture of what's offered. I mean, I think things in the exurbs will halt. But if you look at Toll Brothers, for example, the CEO used the expression mothballed. He said, we've mothballed some of our development in the Poconos area and the areas that were really far away. And now instead of building 70 to 80% of their, what they build and sell being what they call suburban move up homes, now it's 50%. And the mix is made up of all these other things, condo buildings in urban suburbs, big condos in New York City with penthouses that sell for $20 million. Yeah. So the mix is just changing. And the mix is that is that percentage is probably going to be replicated across 
our landscape. So there's going to be much less of that kind of development, the conventional suburban development, and much more of the other stuff. You know that I'm a, a huge fan of Meredith Whitney and would put her on that list of people I would love to speak to someday. Maybe you and I can talk and you can finagle an interview. Uh, I would love her. to make that happen. I would love, <laughs> oh my gosh. I would probably just sit here and go, Bob. <laughs> I'm interested to know because you you do know her personally. And she has the book that you call The Companion, which I, I that's an interesting way to put it. Have the two of you, I mean, has your work informed her in any way, you think, substantively? A little bit. I mean, she read my book early on and I read her book early on. We were kind of commiserating with each other throughout the writing process. You know, she gave me some ideas and she's referenced some of my ideas when she's been speaking about her book. And we've appeared together. We actually did a book discussion together in Bryant Park over the summer. And it's been fun to chat about her with our with our arguments that are so kind of dovetail with, with one another. Well, she's certainly been out there in terms of, and I, th I think the critique of her, which is, in my opinion, completely unfair, is that, well, she, you know, made this call. And that's what she's paid to do is say, here's what I see in the next six months and 12 months of what really is a long-term trend. But it seems to me like her research and her kind of hard data when it comes to the finances of cities and local governments really backs up and parallels a lot of the conclusions that you've drawn in terms of family budgets and family time and some of these other things. It does. I mean, she talks about how these local governments overspent. And she talks a lot about the librarians and the school teachers and the pensions and that side of things. I think I talk more about, you know, a different side of things, but it's all, it's all related. Have you seen a difference in how your book has been received across generations? You know, what, one of the things that I've witnessed is that baby boomers who essentially grew through this time of prosperity with this whole suburban experiment as the foundation of that, have a much harder time questioning its built-in assumptions than millennials do. Are you finding your book getting a different reception as you cross generations? You know, yes and no. I will say everybody I talk to who grew up in the suburbs in the 70s or earlier, they have different kinds of memories than the younger generation has. So people that grew up you know, in an earlier time, they get very nostalgic. You know, I talked to one person, he was probably in his 50s, and, and he grew up in Pittsburgh and had this really idyllic experience where he knew everybody on the block, and they would just all sleep over at each other's houses in a different house every night, a bunch of them, and, you know, he could knock on any door and he'd be welcomed in, and he just doesn't have that. And he lives in a suburb near New York that's an older suburb with his family, and he really picked that because he thought they might be able to have that same kind of experience, and they don't. He said to me, he said, I think I've been trying to recreate that happiness ever since I left. And that was a really poignant quote. I didn't even put that in the book. But I would say that's what people feel. So it's not like baby boomers are sort of, because baby boomers really are the ultimate suburban generation. It's not like the baby boomers I've spoken to have said, hey, you know, you're harshing on my world. It was kind of the opposite. Everybody sees how it's changed. The change is so hard to deny. And so they say, yeah, you know, it's not like it used to be. What, what and millennials, I think, they are the ones who grew up maybe in the outer suburbs and they grew up being driven around in cars and they just want to text. I mean, <laughs> they'll just say, yeah, maybe, I don't know, go, you know, let's, let's, <laughs> I, where I, can I get my Wi-Fi? You just said something, I think, profound that the baby boomers look back with nostalgia on the suburbs, but then say it's changed. What is that that's changed? I think the planner in me or the, the planning profession would say it's just the natural culmination of 
the imbalance between too much and too much suburb and not enough urban, what do you see as having changed? Are we substantively different in the way we build these things than we were when the boomers first move out to them in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, I mean, I think the model completely changed. It's, you know, things got further and further apart from each other. The change is most dramatic when you compare a pre-war suburb to a post-war suburb when the model is literally different. Instead of having the organic village built around a train station, you have the single-use zoning model of the strip mall, the office campus, the houses, and you just kind of drive. Everything's connected by these big, wide roads. That offers a different kind of experience, a different kind of lifestyle. And that is what's changed. I think the design is the change that informed everything else. And the other thing that's changed is also the number of children running around has also changed a lot. I mean, I mentioned in the book, my father grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia called Drexel Hill. And when he was growing up in the 50s, there were 41 children on his block, not the neighborhood, just his one block. And now there's less than 15 on that same block. And that's playing out all across the country as our birth rate has gone down and our demographic makeup changes. There's a group of people out there that I know believe that if we could tweak some things in the suburbs, that we could get back to that nostalgic day. And I hear people who are, you know, in that retirement group talking about how, well, you know, the young kids today don't have the same morals and the same values. And, uh, you know, we're a different society. And some people even go so far as to say, you know, it's certain immigrants that are moving here. These are themes that repeat throughout American history, throughout generations. Is this something that has a chance to get ugly as we move ahead? I mean, could this be an issue that could ultimately divide us the way you maybe see reflected in our politics today? You know, it could be. People like to live around people like them. And I think that that will kind of accentuate. So you see people that want the conventional suburban lifestyle will congregate um, with each other and, and hold firm. And then people that want something different will seek that out. But I actually think it's better. I mean, I think it's better to have options. You know, I mean, for the longest time, if you wanted to live in America, it's not, I'm not overstating things when I say that you could either live in a big city or you could live in a cul-de-sac and there was just very little in between. Right. All of the changes that are happening and everything that I document in the book and everything that the home builders are doing, it's all going to lead to more choices for people. And that's, that's what people want. You know, you want, if you want a neighborhood that's walkable, but still in the suburbs, you should be able to have that. If you want, you know, a huge yard and a big house far away, you, you know, you should be able to have that. If you want to live in a city, you should be able to have that. It'll be much more choose your own adventure rather than, okay, if I want a good school, this is my choice or this is my only option. When I write, I write with my parents in mind because my dad worked at the mill, went back and became a school teacher. My mom stayed at home with us kids and then went back and became a school teacher as well. They're not immersed in this, but obviously they live normal American lives. If you look at that type of person, the quintessential kind of average American, what do you hope that they take away from your work? What do you hope that they read your book and, and walk away with? I hope that they take away the fact that where you live, the kind of community you live in dictates a lot about how your life is going to be and that certain types of communities offer different experiences and that there's different choices out there. I don't want everyone to read this book and then move into the West Village. You know, I want everyone to just read this book and be aware of the ways in which the quote unquote built environment affects your life and your social interactions and what you do every day and, and your overall happiness and well-being. 
I don't think people make that connection. It's pretty huge. Yeah, it is huge. I want to tell you one quick story before we're done. So I was down in Miami and I swung by DPZ's office and was talking to some people and Andre Stwani comes out and he points his finger at me and he said, I I know you, who are you? And I told him, I said, I'm Chuck Marone. He goes, come here with me. I walk back into his office and then he said, well, come out here. And we went out and sat on the picnic table outside and he had a early copy of your book and he's holding it there and he kind of shakes it in front of my face. And he said, this is the most important thing of the entire year. This is the most important book that is going to come out, uh, you know, maybe in the last decade. To me, that was, <laughs> I hadn't read it at that point. Uh, but it just gave me goosebumps because I, I knew the effort and the time that you had put into it. And I knew the quality of what it would ultimately be. And it certainly didn't disappoint uh, when it came out. Dwani on the back cover calls it, uh, you, a steel fist and a velvet glove. I think this is a fantastic book in how it's approachable for people. It's really thick, full of good, juicy facts and data, but also has some beautiful stories mixed in. I just wish you all the success with this because it really is an important work that is very, very timely. Thank you, Chuck. I'm really, I'm humbled by your words and Andreas's and by your support of this. It really means a lot. And, you know, you're being patient with me and, and talking to me at every stage throughout the process was what allowed me to do what I did, which I hope is just write something really cool and interesting that people who don't know anything about this topic will seize on and kind of find kind of neat. I'll put a link to the book on the podcast site. So anybody listening can go there and get it. It is called The End of the Suburbs, Where the American Dream is Moving. Lee, are you, please tell me that they've already booked you for CNU in Buffalo next year. You know, I did a chat with John Norquist and I think I'm on their radar. So I'd love to be a part of it and, and we'll just see what happens. Well, <laughs> we'd love to have you there. I think you'd be an excellent addition. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. And let's do this again at some point in the future when you uh, get through a lot of the other media stuff you're doing. I I'd like to hear how things are being received maybe a year or so from now. Sure. I'm taking notes. I would love to do that. That'd be really fun. <laughs> and then when I come to New York, I would love to meet with you, but you're going to do me that favor and set me up with Meredith at some point, right? I would love that. I'll check in with her. She knows that she's your hero. I told her that very early on and she loved it. And so I'm going to hopefully be seeing her in the next couple of weeks. And I, I'd love to try to make something happen. Very cool. Lee Gallagher, thank you so much. All the best to you. Thanks, Chuck. See you too. All right, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
is our third CR, our third time coming up short. we got to do better. People aren't paying us to duck the hard choices. You want to run through the details, Angela? An act of Congress. A continuing resolution to extend no later than January 3rd, midnight, to include a reduction by 1%. Excuse me, Mr. President, I'm sorry. There's been a change. I know we talked about a 1% cut. It's going to have to be three. Mr. Speaker, nothing like this was even mentioned, much Hold less... On. I'm sorry we couldn't give more notice, but we just came from our conference, and I had significant opposition to only 1%. Only 1%? Yes, sir. We had a deal at 1%. But now my members have to go back to their districts for the holidays, explain why we kept the gravy train running with a rising deficit and an economy crying out for tax relief. It's an economic situation that calls for action, not status quo spending. 3% may sound painful, but it's only for two months. It'll show we're serious. What's next? Sir? In two months, 5%? 50? How many rounds do we go, Jeff? I'm just asking. There is no next, sir. Not to get too technical, but this government runs out of money at midnight, and my guys have gone home. This is it. No. There is no altering this offer, Mr. President. And I said no. Let's be clear, sir. We cannot, we will not vote to keep on footing the bill. You will be held responsible for shutting down the federal government. Then shut it down.